Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. The promise of the American dream is, at its core, fair competition. You work hard and compete in the free market, and eventually you'll be rewarded. But the rules of this competition have always been rigged. Living off the fat of the land, as Steinbeck wrote, has always been for the few and not the many. Historic injustices and decades of inequity have ensured that these same winners just keep on winning. So when we talk about competition in this country, it's hard not to think that it's actually an illusion. But what if it wasn't this way? What if we could even out the competitive playing field and incentivize our leaders in business and government to prioritize equity as strategy? I'm Caroline modaresi Tarani, and you're listening to American Metamorphosis. Competitiveness, to me, means how can we be the best we can be? How can we reach our potential? It doesn't mean beating everyone else. And if you think about it this way, maybe it's not so much a zero-sum game. My name is Alan Eaney, and I have the pleasure of a role with BCG focused entirely on creativity. Your bio is very curious because it says that you have spent your entire life working with creativity in business, but you have a deep focus on navigating uncertainty. So what do you do, Alan? I have this rather unique pleasure of a role, indeed, focused entirely on helping clients look at the future in fresh ways. What gets really exciting, especially in times like these, are thinking creatively about the future, about how to deal with the uncertainty and volatility that has always been there, but now feels more rampant than ever. Alan's take on competitiveness could be considered idealistic. He is less interested in the day-to-day politics and machinations of governments and quarterly results, and more invested in the idea that we might be able to unlock greater creativity if we think about competitiveness in a different way. When you hear the phrase American competitiveness, what comes to mind for you? My mind immediately jumps to uh, manufacturing plants competing against other countries, the Rust Belt, all of these sorts of things. But that's me. That's my bias. And there's so much more to it. For some people, it might mean military might. For some people, it might mean GDP. For some people, it might mean uh, gross national happiness or whatever else you want to measure. Education, health, there's so many things. And I think for me, even beginning to challenge my own assumptions and think about competitiveness in new ways, is, is, it's a fantastic opportunity. Much of Alan's work is exploring our shared understanding of a word like competition and then breaking it down. He calls this mental modeling. Do you think it is possible to shift from a profit-centric definition of competition? You know, about how excellent our businesses are or how great our top colleges are or, you know, the number of billionaires per capita that we have here in the United States to something more inclusive, Can we talk about competition in the same breath as equality and human comfort? Why not? 
in, I mean, let's compete on that. Let's let's try and be the place where every human being. What's the motto of the Gates Foundation? Is every human life has equal value, and everything they do is is focused on that. I may have paraphrased it a little bit, but but fundamentally, if we went with that as a guiding principle, what would it mean? It would change the way we measure what a company does. It would change the way we think about things. It's just one example. There's other definitions possible too, but absolutely, and why not? Listening to American Metamorphosis, a podcast partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the branded content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. In our fourth season, we're talking about American competitiveness. And I think for a lot of us, certainly for our politicians, we talk about American competition in terms of external benchmarks. How good are we doing against the likes of China or the EU? Are we winning on manufacturing, on trade, on GDP? So much energy is spent drafting policy and laws to extend America's global dominance. But for America to be truly competitive, we need to start here at home. And that means re-engineering the playing field to give more people a fair shot at the game. Because right now, things look a lot like the Mississippi River. Let me explain. An invasive group of carp has been taking over much of the Mississippi's 1.2 million square miles. These fish are eating up all they can see, and other marine life are struggling to survive. Some species now even face extinction. It is a full-blown crisis, and it's one of our own making. But as I speak, Americans of all political stripes are working together to try and restore balance and give even the minnows of the Mississippi a chance to thrive. Well, I was very interested in the story of the Asian carp, which goes back to the 60s. They were brought over to this country in an effort at at what we call biocontrol. So we were going to use biological agents to control either aquatic weeds or effluent from sewage plants instead of using chemicals. So it was a sort of very well-intentioned idea that got completely out of hand. My name is Elizabeth Colbert, and I'm a staff writer at The New Yorker. Elizabeth won a Pulitzer Prize for her work on man's relationship to the planet. And in her latest book, Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future, she reports on the ways that human dominance has backfired on itself. One prime example being the introduction of Asian carp into America's waterways. This story really begins over a century ago when Chicago, which had been dumping its sewage into the Chicago River, which at that time ran uh, into Lake Michigan, decided that, you know, this was a really bad idea. They needed to divert their sewage from their drinking water because Chicago gets its drinking water from Lake Michigan. So they launched the biggest construction project of its day to reverse the flow of the entire river 
uh, which they successfully did. And so now the Chicago River, instead of running into Lake Michigan, runs out of Lake Michigan and into the Mississippi water system. And that had this sort of interesting side effect of connecting the Great Lakes and the Mississippi water system. That meant that trouble in one body of water could permeate the other. And decades later, that became a serious problem when the Asian carp arrived. They took over huge swaths of the Mississippi system, nudging aside the native species, really out-competing them very, very, very effectively, uh, causing a lot of native fish species to crash. There are parts of the Mississippi River system, which is you know, a vast, vast river system, where they make up at least three-quarters of the fish biomass. So then the question is, what happened to the other fish that used to live there? And if you talk to fishermen who are still fishing those waters, they will tell you they're, they're just not there, the native fish. They've just been outcompeted by the Asian carp. And what's the problem with that? You know, the, why do we need that kind of competition in nature? You know, if you're a, a person who, who fished on one of these waterways, it's important because those are the fish that people wanted, that they bought. Uh, Asian carp are very bony. I've had many forms of Asian carp and they're quite tasty, so I totally recommend it. But they don't sell in the U.S. So that is one problem. It's just an economic problem. Another problem is if you're a native fish, obviously it's extremely dangerous for you. I'm curious what you've taken away about competition from your reporting on this. One of the reasons invasive species are often very successful is something called predator release. They are transported far from where their predators are, where the, that they evolved with, that endless arms race, that's, that's evolution. So when Asian carp got to the U.S., they didn't have any natural predators, and that's presumably one of the reasons they've been so successful. Uh, even though they themselves are very big, they can eat things that are very, very small. So they just sort of suck everything out of the water system, which just doesn't leave much over for their competitors. In the Mississippi, it is clear that help is needed to restore a sense of balance. In June, the state of Illinois launched a plan to rebrand Asian carp as Kopi carp, hoping to increase demand for them as a food product. Meanwhile, states like Wisconsin, Michigan and Ohio are working together to keep carp out of the Great Lakes. The Army Corps of Engineers has electrified the canal connecting the Great Lakes to the Mississippi, betting hundreds of millions of dollars that carp won't dare cross over. They're thinking of putting another set of barriers uh, further down, further away from the Great Lakes, in this case, Lake Michigan. They've discovered that the carp don't like bubbles, so they're going to you know, spew bubbles into it. Uh, there's going to be some kind of underwater noise uh, that's supposed to intimidate them. And I believe there's also going to be electricity. So it's going to be this sort of multimedia show to keep the carp uh, hopefully, from pushing north. Mm, bubbles, noise, and electricity kind of sounds like Lady Gaga's chromatica ball tour, if I'm honest. Exactly. We've talked a lot about just like these huge efforts that Americans are undertaking right now to slow down this prolification of Asian carp, trying to protect other species. We were late to the game, but now we're trying. What does it say about human nature that we're willing to try? Well, I, I think that's, that's a really good question. That's really the theme of the book, that 
when we face these crises, when we finally realize, wow, we really don't like this, uh, the same is true, you know, the Great Barrier Reef, which is dying, climate change, which is affecting us all now, we suddenly say, well, what are we going to do? And in all these cases, we would have obviously been better off not to set the problem in motion. But in many of these cases, once we've set the problem in motion, we've, we've simply lost control of it. And our only option, as far as we see, is to intervene again. Noise, bubbles and electricity might just work for fish, but when it comes to people and restoring competitiveness in the American economy, more drastic solutions are going to be needed. As an economist, we're taught to think if you just let the market work and be competitive, you're going to get the efficient outcome. And so there's a lot of people who say, well, competition is good. The problem is that it doesn't consider equity. My name is Sandra Black. I'm a professor of economics at Columbia University. Prior to that, Sandra received her PhD in economics from Harvard, worked at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and was a member of the Obama administration's Council of Economic Advisors. I'm curious, when you think of American competitiveness, given all of these different advantages you've had, what does it mean to you? I think about the United States and opportunities across individuals in the United States. So I think about the substantial inequality that we see and how that persists across generations. And so to me, there's all these opportunities that we're missing on that dimension. It's interesting that when you think of competitiveness, your mind goes straight to inequality. Why is that? I think it's because I'm a labor economist and that's what I'm thinking about all the time. (laughs) So I certainly think that people can be more thoughtful about what our goal as a society is and more aware. So I think there are people certainly who, if you said, you know, oh, that person didn't have opportunities, they would say, well, if they worked hard, they could win. Like, that's what America is about. And really, the evidence is that that's just not true, that America is the land of opportunity. But when you look at the numbers, it's not like everyone is born equal and everyone has the same opportunity. And those at the top are the ones who worked hardest. It really is you are born with different levels of advantage and disadvantage. And so you're starting at different points in the race. And so I think if we change society so that we at least have a common goal of equality of opportunity or people, you know, having a chance, I think it would change how people do business and how people think about things. The topic is fresh on the mind of the current administration. Last year, President Biden signed an executive order on American competitiveness. And this past August, he signed another one to provide student debt relief. How do we remain the most competitive nation in the world with the strongest economy in the world, with the greatest opportunities in the world? That's what today's announcement is about. It's about opportunity. It's about giving people a fair shot. It's about the one word America can be defined by possibilities. It's all about providing possibilities. Do you think it's the role of government and the public sector to make sure that more people feel like they can compete? The economy kind of unfettered isn't going to work for everyone. It's naturally going to have winners and losers. And as a society, I'm not sure that that's what we should be striving for. If we want the United States to be as productive as possible, one way to do that is to make every individual as productive as they can be, give them the opportunities to be the most productive member of society that they can be. And 
we're not doing that right now. That there's a lot of evidence that kids who are born to parents who are low income or poor are themselves going to have worse outcomes. And a lot of the research has shown that this is really not because they are inherently bad kids or worse kids, but because they have fewer opportunities. And so there's a ton of research that says if we invest in kids, particularly when they're young, then we'll see these huge benefits. They'll do much better and they'll be much more productive members of society. In my mind, there's kind of two reasons that we care about these things. One is that it's just not right that kids should be born and not have opportunities and food and health insurance and things that, that we think maybe everybody should have. But also, if you're a completely you know self-interested person, you might say, well, it's still worth investing in them because they're going to do better in the long run and that's going to benefit me too. And that's really what the research shows. Kids need the investment and we know there's these huge long-run benefits and so to me it just seems like why aren't we doing this why aren't we doing this they're really really expensive these programs and so people often kind of pit them against each other well do you want to invest in early childhood or should we put money towards college education i think that's really misleading because it's all about our priorities. You pay a lot of attention to the costs of these programs, uh, much less to the benefits of them, and it just shows where our priorities are. Sandra wants us to change those priorities and see the whole picture, and to look at how something like better childcare could improve our collective productivity and prosperity. One of the issues that Obama was really interested in that obviously I care a lot about is the gender gap in opportunities. So how women are paid less, they're less attached to the labor market, and all of this can have an effect on the productivity of our economy or our society, right? Because if women who are productive members of society don't have childcare, don't have access to, you know, care for their parents and have to stay home and not work because of these things, we're missing out. So just that one thing, you know, providing access to affordable childcare would help women go back to work. Plus, it's also going to be good for the kids. You know, if you look at all the developed countries, they have paid family leave and we do not have paid family leave. Like there are things that are exceptional about the United States that I think are really things that we need to fix. And then, of course, there are things that are wonderful about the country. So when we're thinking about American competition and competitiveness, do we, in a way, have to rid ourselves a little bit of short-term thinking and short-term expectations, potentially, and actually be societally more open to longer-term outcomes? Yeah, I think that is an issue. The political cycle is much shorter than how we should be thinking about things. And we have to create kind of the right incentives for politicians right now. It's kind of like, what did you do for me now? (laughs) Not what are you, what have you done for me in 20 years? I do think there's ways to think about inequality and measure it in the shorter run. When we 
think about metrics of how the economy is doing, we often think of GDP or how economic growth is doing. There are other things that we could measure if we cared about other dimensions of society. So, for example, you can look at the unemployment rate as one measure of like how are workers doing relative to big firms. You could also look at how the unemployment rate looks for Black workers because they have persistently higher unemployment rates. And so if you are concerned about kind of the inequities in society, there are short-run ways that you can measure those things that I think we should be doing. I guess ideally what we would like to measure is also happiness and well-being because as a society, we don't just care about your income. We don't just care about your wealth. We care about the whole package of you as a person. When we think about competition, we could do well to borrow a lesson from Elizabeth Colbert's book. The tale of the invasive carp is not just about an unchecked dominant species, but what happens when we fail to think long-term about our problems. We linked the Mississippi River to the Great Lakes without fully understanding the repercussions. And we brought over Kopi carp without realizing what they'd do to native species. So what will it take for us to change our ways? to improve at predicting future outcomes, and to actually act on what we know. I asked BCG's Alan Innie. A lot of this exiting our comfort zones and prioritising equality, it's really about long-term thinking, you know. So talk to us a little bit about the class of 2050. Who are those Americans? You know, what do we need to do now to ensure that more of them are prospering? I think it's a beautiful way of framing the question because by asking about the class of 2050 or as as Native Americans uh, or some tribes of them would often say, think about the seventh generation, um, this sort of logic, you make different decisions. When you're thinking about the seventh generation, you know, you can accept today that uh, it's cheaper to have processed food, it's cheaper to have disposable uh, cutlery uh, than metal ones, and it is more effective under our current systems. But if you think about the seventh generation, if you think about the class of 2050, if you think about the planet, then suddenly you're changing the mindset and you're changing the equation. This is what some of the current thinking around carbon taxes or other sorts of things are meant to, to imitate. So if everything we did was focused on our grandchildren in the class of 2050, we would make different decisions every day in the business world in terms of where we invest, what types of capabilities we build, how we think about the planet, how we think about manufacturing, how we think about short-term profits. It becomes less of an issue. You know, one of the things that's gone down with the, uh, it's not just the average tenure of a company at the top of the leadership charts in their sector, but it's also the average tenure of a CEO. If the average tenure of a CEO has gone down, then this person is not as incented as they otherwise would be to think about 2050. What if their stock options were were tied to not the performance in the next two, three, four years, which is already deemed long-term compared to the quarterly focus, but what if stock options were awarded to your grandchildren in 2050 based on your performance today? That would actually change a lot of things. That would change day-to-day decision-making in a lot of places. And that's the kind of mindset that, that we should be encouraging. So what if alongside GDP, we consider benchmarks like sustainability? or happiness, or how well we care for our elderly, or how much value we place in our workforce. Though these ideas seem foreign, 
they may in fact be the keys to the next era of American competitiveness. Here's Professor Sandra Black again. I first thought about American competitiveness. My my default, I guess, was sort of an us versus them mentality. You know, like the how competitive is America versus China, for example. Um, this is also a narrative I think that governments like to talk about a lot uh, in terms of you know giving themselves or asking people to grade them on how well they're running the economy. How helpful is that perspective, or not helpful to your mind? This us versus them mentality. I think it. In my mind, it's just not what people care about inherently. I think people inherently care about when they go to the market, how much things cost and whether they have a job and if they're sick, whether there's going to be someone who can pay for their health care that they need and whether they can afford to invest in their kids' education and things like that. Why do you think governments talk about them so much? Democrats and Republicans, right? So from my perspective, I think it's a little bit of the Wizard of Oz. Don't look at the man behind the curtain. Pay attention to this where I can kind of wave my hands and say we're winning as opposed to the real problems that that we're not facing. So I think, you know, that kind of big picture of like us versus them is a, a, in my mind, a distraction from kind of the things that we really need to face as a society. You've been listening to American Metamorphosis. Join us next week as we go from discussing competition in the waterways and on the ground to 36,000 feet up in the skies. 